0: I think everybody knows what the word omnipotent means. We went over those when we went over the three. These are all Greek words and the thing you've got to be careful with is these three words that are almost always used by all theologians to describe God, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence are not really biblical words. They're Greek words from Greek philosophy. I think they're accurate to describe God, but you have to analyze what that word really means and you have to define it rather than to take a Greek definition. You have to find out what that word means from a biblical standpoint rather than a philosophical standpoint. That's why we had as much time that we spent on the subject of omniscience because I didn't want to take just what the Greek philosopher's view of omniscience was. I wanted to see what the Bible has to say about what God knows ahead of time. So now we're going to talk about his omnipotence. Who knows what the word omnipotence means? Well, Surely somebody in here knows what omnipotence means. (laughs) Okay? Omni is the Greek word for all. Potence, like we think of something that's potent. Powerful. The word potent really means that it has power, it has energy, it has capacity. Potent or impotent, if something's impotent, it means it doesn't have power, it doesn't have any capacity. I was reading my Bible the other day and it made me think about this subject when I came across this verse in Isaiah 33, 13. Hear ye that are afar off, What I have done. This is God speaking. And you that are near, acknowledge my might. What a good verse for us to have as our theme for talking about God's omnipotence. God does want us to acknowledge his might, to realize that he is the power in this universe, and he is the only source of power. I'm using some very specific words tonight. I want you to think it through. I'm going to say this very specifically because I want you to understand this correctly. He is the only source of power. There's no other source of power in the universe but God. Doesn't mean He's the only being that is even using the power of the Spirit, but He is the source of all power. Usually when we think of God in terms of being omnipotent, we come back to this word that Bruce brought up. He brought up this title of God, El Shaddai. It's probably one of his most well-known Hebrew titles. Most people have heard that one. El Shaddai, a beautiful song written by Michael Card that commemorates that title, El Shaddai. And I always thought that was beautiful. It gave me an interest. Strangely enough, I would probably think it was that song that made me interested in studying Hebrew. But that term, El Shaddai, is most often translated Almighty. The term Almighty is a different word in the New Testament. It's a different word. It's a different language. It's in Greek. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Fifty-seven times in the entire Bible, there's the word Almighty in the English. It's 48 times in the Old Testament. I would probably say that every one of those examples, with the exception of one extremely debatable, difficult passage, are referring to God the Father. They're all referring to God the Father if you read them in context, except for one example that's exceptionally difficult. It's in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to go there and talk on that right now. Out of the Old Testament examples of the term Almighty, it's kind of revealing that 31 out of the 48 times it's used are in the book of Job. It's a pretty high percentage. 31 out of the 48 times the term Almighty is used. Now, why do you think that would be? Why do you think it'd be used more in Job by far than anywhere else? He's probably the most practical example of where you'd want to know that God was still Almighty. Yeah, both sides of the extreme. He's Almighty in the sense that you don't have the power to help yourself, only He can do it. He's almighty in the sense that if he restricts you, or if he allows something to happen to you, there's nothing you can do to escape it. So either extreme, whether deliverance, or the fact that you're going through judgment, or any other type of trial, he's almighty. It is interesting, I think, that it's 31 times out of the 48 are in the book of Job. Do you think it's possible for there to be more than one omnipotent being at the same time? No. Why? Why couldn't you have more than one? All the very definition of the word negates the possibility. Yeah. yeah. It means one. (laughs) Well, it doesn't mean one. It's not (laughs) unipotent. One power. Give me a reason, though. You may be saying that from an emotional standpoint. I want you to have a real reason why there can't be two omnipotent powers at once. Somebody tell me why. Diana tells me that it nullifies itself. It does, but you need to be able to tell me why it nullifies itself. Why is it impossible to have two omnipotent beings at once? Well, if there were more than one, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be almighty. <laughs> uh-huh. You couldn't have two beings that could do anything? That have the power to do anything? One would have it. No, I don't think so. It sounds like you're having a hard time with it emotionally. I want you to tell me intellectually why you can't have two omnipotent beings. Could there be two omnipotent beings at the same time? It wouldn't be all power. They'd be sharing power. we would have to share power. So it wouldn't be omnipotent. Well, Brother Lee's getting on a good track. God the Father is in heaven and Jesus is on earth. Isn't Jesus the most all Dan, horrible? you're trying to get to the point. Dan's good at that. Dan's trying to get to the point that I'm talking about the Godhead, but thats I want you to think about something else before I get to the Godhead. That's good, Dan. You're doing good. I I don't want to go that fast that far though just yet. I want you to think about this before we get to that point. I want you to reason this out with spiritual reasoning and with intellectual reasoning because God does use both. I want you to think about this. Is it possible for there to be two omnipotent beings at the same time? And why not? Brother Lee started on a good track toward one answer to that. All power would be the top one, wouldn't it? So how can you have two top ones? Well, does omnipotent require it to be a single top power? I don't know if it it does. (laughs) It's not all power. Brother Lee is taking a very good tack. There's another angle I want you to look at, too, though, and I'm waiting to see if someone will uncover it. It's pretty obvious logic. I'm talking about omnipotent power. Power that cannot be resisted if it's exercised. Now, I worded it exactly like that for a reason. Power that cannot be resisted if it's exercised. Let's just say, for example, that I'm the strongest person in this room and nobody can beat me at arm wrestling. If I don't choose to arm wrestle, somebody else might be the arm wrestling champ around here, right? If I choose not to exercise that strength, or maybe I let somebody win. If you didn't choose it, that wouldn't keep you from being omnipotent. Just because you didn't use it. That's right. That is really something I want you to grasp. Just because you're omnipotent doesn't require you to exercise that power. If I'm the strongest person around here and I can beat anybody at arm wrestling, here's my little daughter wanting to arm wrestle, I want to let her win. Does that mean I'm not omnipotent because she won? No. Okay. You'll have your power. Okay. Well, that's one thing we're going to talk about if we have time tonight. Here's another thing I want you to consider. If there were two beings who were both equally omnipotent, they would cancel each other out. They would negate one another, as Diana said. Now, I want to explain that, though. We can't just stop with that. If I am omnipotent, then that means nothing is more powerful or equal in power to me. That's right. So if Brother Renz is also omnipotent, then I'm not omnipotent. Right. That's right. I don't have all power if he has all power also. I'm trying to make this very simple. It's much more complicated than what I'm making it if you have an all-powerful being, that being is only all-powerful as long as no one else is equal to it. You can only have an omnipotent God if there's no other being that is at the degree of power that that omnipotent God is, or that God doesn't have all power. Okay? Now those two things I don't want you to think about as we start going through here. We're going to go through a number of scriptures, but first I want to just lay a little bit of groundwork. There are some things about God's power that are distinct from any other power you see exercised. You could argue angelic beings have power, and I would say that every bit of power in the universe finds its source in God, which is a very strong reason for you not to fear the devil, using Job as an example today, because the devil can be curtailed from his power any time God wants to snuff it. There's no cosmic war going on between Satan and God. I don't mean they're not at war in the spiritual realm between God's children and the children of the devil. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, Satan is not in any truly threatening position to God. He couldn't be. Because he has no power that God doesn't allow him. All God has to do is snuff off that flame, and Satan's power is gone. Job is an example of that. The fact that the adversary couldn't even do anything to Job until God permitted it. God is all powerful in the sense that there is no threat to his power, there is no equal being that has equal power. There's nobody that could threaten him or remove his dominion in any way, shape, or form. That's really the point of God's omnipotence. But there's some things about that power God does that I want you just to think about, they're pretty obvious, that no other being is capable of. What do you think some of those are? I just want one or two simple examples, because we're going to go through the scriptures and you'll see some. What do you think are some examples of some things that God has power to do that no other being has ever had power to do? I don't mean God couldn't give someone the power to do it. Because there are times that the greatest thing that we see God doing in terms of power to show a miracle to narrow it down even more, he does use men to do that sometimes. But it's through his power. What do you think one of the most incredible things is that God does that no other being can do? Give life to someone. Raise the dead. Give life. There's no other being that can take something that's dead and bring it back to life. There's a lot of beings, whether human or spiritual, that can take the life away from something, but they don't have the power to restore it. That's one of the very distinct things. You could make a list, I'm not going to do this, but you could, if you really want to say this out, make a list of what you think are some things about God's power that there is no other being that can do that thing without God giving them the power to do it. There were prophets that raised the dead, but that wasn't that man that raised the dead. It was the power of God exercised through that individual. It wasn't as if that man could raise the dead without God. It was God's power that allowed for that. And I want to take it further than just the obvious. Most of the examples in the Bible of God raising the dead are individuals that w- there were still bones or sinew or flesh or something left when He raised them. Have you thought that through? Most of the examples of people that were resurrected in the Bible, there was still a body there that was raised. How about those that, when the Lord resurrected? Do you think all those were still in the body? When you're talking about the ones in Matthew 27:52 those saints that slept that arose when His resurrection, it could very well be that their bodies had dissolved, that their bodies had gone on to corruption. My point isn't to argue that God can't resurrect somebody, that their body's gone back to the dust. Not at all. Just that most of the examples in the Bible are people that still have a body. But that doesn't limit God from resurrecting a body that's been completely corrupted and gone back to the dust, because that is your hope is that even if you've been in the grave a hundred years, your body, that God can raise you up. It doesn't matter where you end up. It doesn't matter if you're cremated or buried. It doesn't matter if you die at sea or up on a mountaintop somewhere. It makes no difference whatsoever. God doesn't need a physical body to resurrect you. That is a power far beyond. In fact, that particular power, I don't see examples of anyone exercising, even in the Bible. We just hear the hope of it. That power of someone that's been dead a hundred years and they've gone back to the dust and God raises them up. It's only God that seems to do that particular uh, work. Do you think Moses and Elijah were in a body or was that just a vision? That the Lord should Paul? James and John. Is that just uh, a vision? On the Mount of Transfiguration. There's several views on that. When I start saying that, you know what that means, don't you? <laughs> There's the view that that was truly Moses and Elijah, that God called them back into existence, and they were standing there in a corporal body that he called them into existence, which he can certainly do. He could, then he'd have to take them back in the ground. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Then there's the view that that was a a vision, either a vision in the sense that God created, um, I don't want to use this term, this isn't what God uses, but like a holographic image, that here's an image of Moses and Elijah. Or a vision that the disciples themselves had, that God put that in their minds for them to see that. There's a lot of ways you could look at that from kind of a philosophical standpoint. I'm not going to take a side on that. I'll just let you know those are the three most prominent views. Either that he put the thought in their mind they thought they were seeing that, or he caused there to be some type of an image appear to them they saw that, or that God called them back and created them in another flesh and blood body of some kind, or an angelic body, whatever you'd like to say it was, and they were standing there with Christ. The real point of the Mount of Transfiguration isn't so much that Moses and Elijah, and I'm not taking a side when I say this, I'm just making a point. The point of that, same thing we talked about Melchizedek, what's the point? Is the point to compare two people or two orders, see? That's what you need to analyze in that too. What's the real point of Moses and Elijah showing up? It's just a picture of the law and the prophets. So would it have to be real figures there? Well, it wouldn't have to be. I don't think it would necessitate those to be physical beings because they were just picturing something. It was the fact that the law and the prophets were testifying to and and witnessing to Christ, and He was being transfigured, not them. He was being transfigured. The glory was on Him, and they were testifying that. Now maybe God called them back from their rest, if you will. Maybe they were standing there with Jesus. Certainly is possible. How could they even recognize who they were? That's my same point for Matthew 27.52, Diana. How would you know it was Moses and Elijah? Peter, James, and John had never seen Moses or Elijah. Not only was it a long span of time for anybody to have been able to record them, you know, what they looked like, the Jews were very much against portraits and so on. So they wouldn't have drawn a picture of Moses and Elijah and passed it down. So how would they have known what Moses and Elijah looked like? Well, it looks to me as if the only way that they would have known that's Moses and Elijah is if Jesus told them. They saw somebody there and they said, who was that you're talking to? Now, that's not in the Bible, but how else would they have found it out? Or, yes, that's the other example. Or Revelation. Have you ever had a dream where you knew where you were at, but you didn't recognize it? You knew you were in such and such a church, but you'd never been there before. You know, you have a dream and you know things about your locality and the people around you that you couldn't know. That, you just, that knowledge is intrinsic to the dream. It could be like that. It could be that when they had that vision or whatever it was, that they knew in the Spirit. That's Moses and Elijah. That's a logical way of looking at it. Or it could be that Jesus said. They said, who was that you are meeting with? Well, that was Moses and Elijah. There's several ways you could look at that. Here's another thing God does that is an exercise, in my opinion, of his omnipotent power. It's very similar. It's actually an extension or maybe even prior example of creating life, for example, out of nothing. Even if it goes back to dust. You could argue that all matter... I want to try to make this simple for you. I don't want to try to get into the laws of physics and so on. Matter never goes away, at least in this closed system we're in. You burn something up, the ash is still there. Matter never disappears. You can't disintegrate something. It's always there in some form or another. So you could argue that God is creating out of something. I'm not telling you this is right. I am just wanting you to think. You could argue God is creating out of something because there's something already there and he's just using the matter. Some people even argue that that's what was going on in the first chapter of Genesis. I don't agree. They think that everything that happened in the first chapter of Genesis was God just using material that was already there and shaping it. The opposite view to that is that God creates, in this Latin term, ex nihilo, E-X-N-I-H-I-L-O, out of nothing. I believe God can create out of nothing. Romans 4.17 is probably the best example to prove that biblically. It's talking about the resurrection and it says in regards to God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which are not, which be not, as though they were. I don't think anybody else can do that. That's part of the omnipotent power of God that he can call things that are not as though they were. They don't have to be in existence for God to create. But it looks like part a bit of creation in the first chapter of Genesis is out of some material. The earth was without form and void and then God starts to work and bring things into being. An example that is a little bit debatable because of even my view of it is the original light source. Did he create that out of nothing or was it already in existence? The original looked to me like it was his glory, illuminating the earth. Well, my answer to that when people have asked me, where did that light come from? Since the sun, the moon, the stars were created later, that obviously wasn't the sun when he said, let there be light and there was light. You could argue that's creating something out of nothing, which I do believe he can do that. But I'm not certain that that's exactly what that was. I believe that there was a dimensional veil between God's dimension, where he's at, third heaven, and between the creation, and that when he was working on it, God just opened up the veil and the light of third heaven shone out on the creation. I think it was the light of God's domain. He dwells in light, which no man can approach unto So when he said, let there be light, I think it was almost like someone pulling back the curtains. And that wonderful dimension where God exists, he opened it up, and the light of God's dimension shone on the world. Now, that's just my opinion. But that would mean that wouldn't be strictly creation out of nothing. It would mean that he opened up the veil between his realm and this creation he was making. Wasn't there uh, a lot of the plagues with Egypt, you know, they threw down the staff and it turned to a snake and there was a uh, combative thing there. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there one of the plagues that God created out of nothing? That's when the split happened in the plagues. There was a combat, if you want to call it that. There was a competition of sorts going on up to a point. The first one, of course, being the Nile River turned to blood and the magicians were able to do it, weren't they? At least in some form, whether it was true blood or some kind of little trickery or whatever. Then the frogs. Well, notice what he did. He called forth frogs. He didn't create them out of nothing. He called them up from all the swamplands and rivers, and here they came. Every frog in Egypt showed up. Well, that didn't mean he created them. And they were able to, to some extent, mimic that. Then there were swarms of lice. Eighth chapter of Exodus, so you know where to go for this. 16th verse is where the swarms of lice show up. The third verse of the 8th chapter says, The river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, your bedchamber. We won't read on. It might disconcert you. But into a lot of places, you don't want frogs roaming around. So the frogs came up. But they came up out of the river, didn't they? Yeah. If you look at the third plague of the lice, you'll see that the lice were created out of the dust. Now that is a whole different ball game than calling something up. Now it's not out of nothing exactly, Dan. But it is out of something that is a totally different form. Inanimate, yes. It says here that they smote the dust of the earth and it became lice. In the 18th verse, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. That's not creating something out of nothing. But they couldn't create something that was alive out of something that was dead. That goes back to what I said is one of the signal things about God's omnipotence is that He can create life out of something that's dead. It's one of the greatest things about our Christian hope is that we serve a God that can create life out of death. Spiritually, physically, however you'd like to apply that, there is no other God that can create life out of death. God has the power to create life out of death. The magician's response to that, and I think it was pretty telling that they would say this, I think it's in the 19th verse, isn't it? This is the finger of God. They knew this was a far greater power than they had the ability to exercise. This isn't just some power that Moses and Aaron are exercising. This is God himself. I do believe God can create ex nihilo. God can create out of nothing. But most often God uses something that is already there to create. What about the angels? The angels would probably be an example of something created out of nothing. But our biggest problem with that is we don't know how they were created. I think it's broken. They too. It looks to me like that's probably what happened too. But you've got to prove it. See, there's too much that there's... Well, there's the trouble. I'll I'll tell them, you prove it. (laughs) All right, all right. Well, I don't know if I can prove it either, brotherly. That's the problem. There's a lot of things that have crept into Christianity that nobody can prove. They just have believed for 2,000 years. You can't prove it. You can say this is what the Scripture means, but if you take the weight of the Scriptures, you'll find that just cannot fit. So, can you prove that God created the angels out of nothing? All you could probably go far back enough to show is that they were there when He created the... Some people believe that when He created the sun and the moon and the stars, that's when He created the angels. I've heard that. That is not true. Job 38 is very distinct in saying, where were you when the foundation of the earth was laid? And it talks about the very beginning of creation, before the moon and the stars. And it says, when the morning stars sang together, that's the angels, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So they were there when God created the earth. So he obviously created the angels prior to the creation of the earth. God and Jesus were certainly there for the creation of the earth. There's eight different times in the first chapter of Genesis that God said something and it came about. So there's your example, Brother Lee, of talking about when God said something. His word created something. And the first example, that's what we've been talking about, Genesis 1 3, where it says God said, let there be light. And this sounds like creation out of nothing, and maybe it is and there was light. God just said it, and there it was. Yeah. But it is my personal opinion. I believe God creates out of nothing. I believe that Romans 4.17 is an example of that, that he calls those things that are not as though they are. But I am not sure you could prove that by this verse, because you don't know where that light came from. You don't know if he just created light out of nothing, or if he somehow already had light and he opened it up. like turned on a flashlight to the world that it was already a light source. I just want you to think about what type of power God has that no other being has. That's really what I want you to get you thinking about. We digressed into several rabbit trails on the process of doing that, but what type of power does God have that no other being has? I think one example of that power is to create life out of something that is not alive, to bring something into existence, to create in a way that man cannot create. I think that's critical. And then the follow-up question to that is, are there any limits to God's power yeah, me. <laughs> well Lee he says he's a limit alright well that would be an example of the 78th Psalm I limit God's power. where it was talking about God intending to do some things for Israel and says they limited the Holy One of Israel they turned back and they limited the Holy One of Israel so I would agree with that I mean are there any limits to his power that you can give me examples of other than human beings trying to resist him are there any limits to his power is there anything he can't do Because the truth of the matter is, if he wants you to obey him, he can make you obey him. He has the power to do that. So are there any limits to his power? Only the power that he chooses not to use. I mean, I would say the things like, I mean, he can't fail. I've heard that. Can I lie? There's an example that I think is a good example. Can God lie? No way. Well, let's think about this then when we define omnipotence. Is he all-powerful in the sense that he's able to have the power to lie if he wants to? He could be wanted to. There is a point behind all this. This is kind of a philosophical discussion. There's a really important point I want you to get out of all this discussion that is underneath it, like a foundation stone resting underneath all this discussion that I'm going to keep coming back to. And it relates very closely to what God's sovereignty consists of. Does he have the capacity to lie? Could he lie if he wanted to? What is keeping him from lying? His poor character. character. Very poor His character. His choice. He can't even look at sin. He can't even behold sin. Right. Why not? Is he not omnipotent? My mind's getting stretched a little too far. <laughs> I want to stretch to it. I want you, you to have to go buy a new hat when we're done, Rodney. <laughs> Well, man, man can lie if he wants to, but he don't have to. Logic or scripture, either one would be able to answer this. Can God lie, and then if he cannot lie, why not? Well, it looks to me like if he lied, he wouldn't be God. It would take away some of his, his character and, his, and dependability. It would go against his nature, wouldn't it? What makes God God prohibits God from lying. It's that his character creates a boundary that prohibits him from taking a certain action. Would you agree with that? Right. Isn't it God's character, his nature, who he is that prohibits him from lying? If he lied, he diminishes his character. I think he has the power that he could lie. It's his character that creates a boundary for him. Now there's a point behind all this that's extremely important. I'm trying to introduce slow enough that everybody gets it on their own. Do you think God has boundaries? When I say, are there limits to God's power, what I mean is, are there boundaries? I think you have self-imposed boundaries. Self-imposed boundaries. That's exactly what I was looking for. I don't think there's any boundary to God's power that's not self-imposed. There is a whole mindset in Christianity that God must act because He has the power to. Why is that? Why is God forced to act just because He has the power? God has to act. In order to be sovereign, He has to use His power. Why is that? I gave you this example a few minutes ago that I could be all-powerful in terms of being the greatest arm-wrestler ever known to man, but I can still allow my daughter to win. It doesn't make me any less powerful. I can still allow myself to be even pulled back and forth by somebody else who's arm-wrestling with me. It doesn't mean I'm not the most powerful. Do you follow? There's some points behind all this. I'm just trying to introduce them at a simple level. There are some examples that are used by both atheists as well as apologists who are arguing for God's power. An example of that would be this. Can an irresistible force move in a movable object? It's kind of like having two omnipotent beings, isn't it? conjecture. And here's how they would explain it in terms of God. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this philosophical element, but I want you to get this at least. If God created something that was immovable. He has the power to do that, right? He's all-powerful. He can create something that's immovable by any force. I don't believe it would be immovable to him. See the conundrum? See if the problem? But do you see the contradiction? If he creates it for the purpose of being immovable, even by him, is that possible? No. You see how there have to be boundaries to God's capacity. He can't create something that's immovable to him. That's a boundary. That's a boundary. That's a limitation. That means God isn't capable of creating an object that He can't move. Because if He did, He wouldn't be all-powerful. He might be powerful enough to create the immovable object, but He wouldn't be powerful enough to move it. So He couldn't be omnipotent. Now that is a hard thing to get your brain around. I know, I'm sorry, Gloria. She's looking at me like I've lost my mind. It's a hard thing to get your brain around, but I want you to think about this. If God can create something that's immovable that He can't move, He can't be all-powerful. So there have to be limitations God to, and boundaries. That's exactly right. That's, right. That's a limitation though, isn't it? Right. Let me ask you some more questions before we get into some of the scriptures. And this is parallels what we are just talking about. Can God take actions that are contradictory to his own character and nature? And here's a simple example. We use the example, can God lie? Can God sin? Can a holy God sin? Wouldn't be holy. So there's a limit to His power, isn't there? He doesn't have the power to sin if He has imposed that limitation on Himself by His holiness. If He has imposed the limitation on Himself, it binds Him. Sure does. I want you to really think about this. You may think, well, that's common sense. If you really get this, it'll answer some things for you later that are very important doctrinal points. If he can bind himself, which he has to be able to, if he can bind himself, it's a limitation, isn't it? He created a self-imposed limitation. That is the same thing that runs along the line with him lying. Why can't God lie? Because he has self-imposed restrictions on himself by his character and who he is that don't permit him to lie so God can limit himself. And here and then is another related question before we get into the little more simpler tech. Is God required to act or can he impose boundaries on himself? That's what we've been talking about. Does God have to act? No. 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 That's what to well, of course it depends. Right. He can choose to act. He has the power to act. But is he required to act? Does he have to act or can he impose a boundary on himself? He's required to act according to his Plan. Yes. Now you're getting where I'm going. Can God design a system? I think that's what Brother Lee is talking about. I'll try to use several words so you, maybe you can think about it in your own terminology. Can God design a system, a world, a mechanism, a plan with self-imposed limitations built in for Him? Absolutely. Could God make a plan for mankind that He already built into the plan some self-imposed limitations on himself. He already did it. He's survived his son. Could God have designed a plan that would allow mankind to freely choose him or reject him without losing his omnipotence? He did that. Could he design a plan where you could freely, in your own free will, choose him or reject him, Good. and he's still omnipotent? Well, he did that. We are. Well, that's what, of course, that's what I believe. I'm just asking you to think about this. Could God design a plan for man to save mankind in which man has the free choice to accept or decline the invitation and yet it doesn't take away God's omnipotence? That's true. Right. He, did. he did. Do you understand why I think this is so important? Can God design a plan where He imposes upon Himself certain restrictions so that He can allow man to freely choose to either select or reject His will for their life and it doesn't take away his omnipotence. Yes, right. That's for sure. My failure doesn't affect God. God's omnipotence does not require him oh. to control every microcosmic thing. That would mean God is a slave to his own power. Are you following me, Still? Again. God's omnipotence, does God's omnipotence doesn't re- I don't know if I can repeat things like that, Rodney. They just come out. <laughs> God's omnipotence doesn't uh, I don't even know what I said. That's why we record these Bible studies, right? <laughs> God's omnipotence does not require him, I'm going to word it a little differently, I'm sure, to exercise his power. If his omnipotence required him to exercise his power, he'd be a slave to that power. That means he can't choose to do anything different. He's forced to act. Can a king choose not to exercise his sovereign power? Yes, he can. People that believe God's sovereignty requires action, they believe that it would limit God if he doesn't act. It actually is just as limiting to God if he's forced to act. What if God chooses to allow some things to go on? He permissively allows them. Hazarus is an example of this with Esther. Hazarus could have chosen to take Esther's life when she came before him. That was part of the way their law was. You don't just approach the king without an invitation. You don't just come stumbling into the throne room, decide to start a conversation. You've got to have a proper introduction, if you will, a proper invitation. It was Ahasuerus' will as the king to be able to decide how he was going to respond to her actions. Now, if he had followed the specific dictates of the law, she wouldn't have got out of there alive. But he had the choice to handle that in the way he wanted to. The real point I want to make is, I want you to consider whether or not God has limitations that he's imposed upon himself. If some of those limitations he's imposed upon himself for the sake of his plan... And that in order to achieve some kind of an open-ended result, in other words, a result that isn't already set in stone, a perfect example of open-ended result is somebody loving you. You don't know if they're going to love you or not. Love is a choice. The only way for God to allow man to have the choice to love him is if he limits his reactions to man's choices. Or he limits his interaction so he doesn't take over man entirely and force him to love him. Because once you have entirely taken command of another being, they can't really truly love you. It's not love when you're a slave to that relationship. And you don't have a choice in the relationship. If I'm forcing somebody to do something, is that person righteous by merit of the fact that I'm forcing them to do it? Is a slave obedient because I've got them chained and I'm beating them with a whip and that's why they're working? Does that make them obedient? Well, you could argue they're obedient, but is that the right kind of obedience? Let's go into some of the scriptures. The Bible speaks in a very wide range about God's capability to answer our needs. He is capable. The Bible is very distinct and clear on that particular element. I'm going to run down through some of these scriptures with either on your handout, so I'll just run through them and read them fairly quickly. Genesis 18, 13-14. I think most of you know what this is. This is where God was making the promise that Isaac was going to be born, and of course, Sarah's response to that was the laugh. Which I suppose a lot of people would laugh if they were as old as Sarah was, almost 90 years old, and somebody tells you you're about to have a child, you'd find that humorous too, most likely. Lord said unto Abraham in the 13th verse, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? And here is the key. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then Job 42, too. This is Job speaking to God, but he, I think, had learned this by experience. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Now, I'm going to go through them pretty quick, so if you're trying to keep up in the Bible, it might be hard to do. But you've got these references on your handout. And then Isaiah 26.4. These are scriptures relative to His almighty and omnipotent power. Trust you in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Not just strength, but everlasting strength. In Matthew 19.26, This was in a conversation about how difficult it is for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven and to accomplish what God wants for his life. And Jesus' response to them was, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. A little bit earlier chronological example in Luke one, where the angels speaking to Mary in the thirty six and thirty seventh verse, the angel says, Behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is a sixth month with her, who is called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And then probably one of the best examples of this of this particular word is Revelations nineteen six. I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as a voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth. That's the only place in the Bible the word Omnipotent is used. It's actually the the same word translated elsewhere, Almighty. In the New Testament, that's the Greek word translated Almighty. I'm not sure why they chose to translate it this way here. There's nothing wrong with it being translated that way. But it really is saying the Lord God Almighty reigns. I suppose it was a little more poetic to say the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth. That word there in the Greek is Panto Krator. P-A-N-T-O-K-R-A-T-O-R Krator. Pan is another word that means all. Can you think of an example in our modern day? Think of an airline that talked about how their coverage is all over America. Pan Am, Pan American. Pan means all. Kratos means power. So all power. So that's what that word omnipotent there means. It's used ten times in the New Testament. Is that Greek? That's Greek, yes. It's used ten times in the New Testament, and interestingly enough, that word is, out of those ten times, nine in the book of Revelation. One time is in 2 Corinthians 6.18. And every other time it's used, the King James translators translated it almighty, except for Revelation 19.6, where they translated it omnipotent. All right, then your next section of verses there. God is the source of all power... And the force of power that maintains and upholds all things. What am I saying? All power finds its origin in God. There's no other source of power. All power finds its origin in God. And the worlds, the universe, the creation, mankind, the stars and the planets in their elliptical orbits and in their gravitational orbits are all held in place and moved and directed by the force of God if God chooses to withdraw his power out of this closed system that you and I are living in, we're in a closed system, you know. We can't just leave this universe and head off into third heaven or wherever we want to go. We're in a closed system no matter what kind of spaceship they build. It's a closed system. And if God chooses to pull his power out of this closed system, the problem with a closed system is power has to be going into it to keep it going. A closed system requires power to come into it to keep it going, like a plug, fuel, whatever it might be. An open system might be drawing power from different places, but a closed system, like our universe we're in, something is maintaining the power of this closed system that we're in. It's the Spirit and the power of God. And any time God chooses to draw back His Spirit, this universe will stop its tick-tock, and it'll be over. Here's some examples. Job thirty-four, thirteen to 15 who hath given him a charge over the years? Or who hath disposed the whole world? If he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, God, all flesh shall perish together and man shall again turn unto dust. The only thing that's keeping us in a body right now is the spirit of the living God. When Adam was formed into a body out of dust, it was the breath of God that brought that dust to life. And when the breath of God leaves that body, the body is dead. When God withdraws his breath, everything is dead. There's nothing left alive after God withdraws his breath. It's not just your body that dies. Everything dies when the spirit and breath of God gets drawn back into himself. That's why the 53rd chapter of Isaiah says that he poured out his soul unto death, not just his body. Everything dies when you die. The breath of God goes back to God who gave it. And The breath is not the same thing as the soul, so we'll leave that go for now. Psalm 75.3, The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. That means God's the one that's holding this thing all together. In Psalms 145.16, Thou openest thine hand and satisfieth the desire of every living thing. In Isaiah 40.25-26, to, to whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, and not one faileth. Daniel two twenty to 23 this is a beautiful poetic statement Daniel made. He made this in a pretty unique environment. You realize Daniel was saying this to the most powerful king on the face of the earth at that time. It was the king of Babylon. Daniel made this statement to. And here's the king of Babylon wanting some things. And Daniel's response to him in terms of whether or not God is going to answer his request. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and strength are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge unto them in no understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light Here's an example of a scripture I might use to back up what I said a little bit earlier about his dimension. The light dwelleth with him. And then finally, a very strong example of this in Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Christ is the operational arm, the tool, that God uses to exercise his power in relation to the creation. That's why I put this diagram on the left side of your handout. Show you how God operates. He operates through His Son to accomplish His will. That's what Genesis 1:26 is talking about when it says, "Let us make man in our own image." God having a conversation with His Son, <coughs> Jehovah God, if you want to call Him that, that's the Latinized form of it, Yahweh, through the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, uses Yeshua HaMashiach, which is the Hebrew way of saying Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, to exercise His will. Jesus is the arm of the Lord in the scripture. When God chooses to operate directly on mankind in some way to create or to do anything else, he reaches out through his arm to accomplish it, and that's Christ. Colossians 1:15 to 17 says, Who is the image, talking about Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things are created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Finally, for that subject, Hebrews 1, 1 1-3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had himself purged our sins, set down the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm going to go through another set here at the bottom. There's quite a few, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly and skip around through them. I'm just going to read part of these. Numbers 11, 21 to 23. These are examples of God's power being beyond finite human comprehension, beyond human limits. It's obvious he's omnipotent, but I want to make the point as well that even within that concept, he's beyond any limit we could put on him. Numbers 11 is where Moses is debating with God whether or not God can provide for his people, and God makes this statement. It's strange Moses would say that, but God makes this statement. Is the Lord's hand wax short? Mm-hmm. Moses is saying, I'm not sure you can do it, Lord. I'm not sure you can provide enough food for this bunch. Is the Lord's hand wax short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come pass unto thee or not. First Samuel 2.6 is another example. It says, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave. A lot of people can bring someone down to the grave, but again this last, And he bringeth up. A lot of powerful people can do the former, but only one can do the latter. Only God can raise someone up. 1 Samuel 14.6 it's Jonathan talking to his armor bearer, and I like his approach to this. It's a pretty positive thinking type of approach when you're about to run uphill at a garrison of enemies. First of all, you don't run uphill hill. somebody's got the high ground. But Jonathan wasn't one bit afraid of that. Jonathan was ready to head uphill, and his statement was this. It may be, isn't that strange? Just like what Brother Rodney talked about, we talked about today with the Hebrew children and Job. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Look, we're going uphill, friend. And we're going up against a hail of arrows and probably spears. And almost always whoever holds the high ground has a military tactical advantage. That you're probably going to lose your life running uphill into that. But it may be that the Lord will work for us. And here's why. There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. It doesn't make any difference to God whether you have the tactical advantage. He can have one guy run up a hill. Samson's a good example of that. And then 1 Chronicles 29, 11-13. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of Thee, and Thou reignest over all. And in Thine hand is power and might, and in Thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. In 2 Chronicles 14.11, this was Asa's appeal. He cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with Thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. And then Eliaphaz's appeal in Job 5, 8-9. This is what his advice, I guess, to Job. I guess Eliaphaz's point, he was one of the three quote-unquote comforters. I guess his point to Job was, if it was me, this is what I would do. Since you're in this bad situation, Job, I would seek unto God. And unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous without number. Some of these I'm not going to read, but you could go through the 26th chapter of Job, full of wonderful examples. Probably one of the most powerful chapters describing God's power. Job 37, especially 5th verse, 14th, and the 23rd verses. Job 40, verse 9. You could probably allegorize this, but it's a powerful poetic statement. hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Job 41.10-11 None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? You know what that means? If I want to bring justice and judgment on somebody, there's nobody that can stop it. Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. In Job 42.2 I know that thou canst do everything, and that no side can be withholding from thee. Another example of a whole chapter you could read would be Psalms 29. I'm not going to go through those. Psalms 62, 11 to 12. Power belongeth unto God. Psalms 66, 1 to 7. It's a beautiful example. I'll let you read that one on your own. Psalms 93, 1 to 5. It's especially encouraging in a day when the sea of mankind is in turmoil, which it is right now. The sea of mankind is in turmoil. Do you know what I mean by the sea of mankind? This world around us, all the governments and the political systems, the financial systems, the cultural belief systems, oh, they think they're progressing. That's what a liberal progressive agenda means. We're moving forward. We're progressive. Well, they're progressing, all right, down to death and hell. Forward progress in terms of social liberalism is progress, all right. Progress down the steps to death and hell. Because the closer we get to the world and the more we allow the world to affect our worship, our constraints of ourselves, and the more we allow evil to become acceptable, the closer we draw ourselves to death and hell, saints. Psalms 93 is a beautiful, encouraging passage, so I will read that one. It says, The Lord reigneth. That alone is enough. Do you believe that's enough? Do you believe those first couple words are enough? You don't even need to read the rest. The Lord reigneth. God is in charge. It doesn't mean that because something evil happens, God made it happen. But it does mean anytime time he chooses to, he can bring an end to it. I believe he's already planned a time when he is going to bring an end to it. An expected end, both in a good way, like Brother Don talked about. That was your scripture day, wasn't it? Talking about a good and an expected end. There's a good and an expected end, and there's a bad and expected end. Did you know that? Yeah. Thank you, Brother Don, for focusing on the positive. There's a good and expected end, praise God. I'm going to unfortunately take the other side. There's a bad and expected end too. God's already planned out the day of the Lord, the day of His wrath, the day that the winepress of the wrath of God is going to be poured out on man. That's going to happen as well. But the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith He has girded Himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old, His seat of power. Thou art from everlasting, and the floods have lifted up, O oh Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. And it is troubling when the floods are lifted up their waves, and it looks like the world's just gonna swallow the church. Looks like culture around us is gonna bring us down. Brother Don mentioned some things today, and I can promise you if this culture doesn't stop going in that direction, Don, it'll swallow the church. They'll swallow it by fiat, if nothing else. They'll make laws that'll close churches if you don't support some of those things. They'll do everything they can to destroy the Judeo-Christian values this nation was founded on. Their goal is to destroy those values. But that should not make us fear, because even though the floods have lifted up their voice, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, praise His holy name, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. But so God's mightier than all that. In Psalms 135, 5-6, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and earth and the seas and in all the deep places. Some of these longer ones, I'll just let you read in your own. Psalms 145, 1-7. and Then Psalms 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Isaiah 26, 3-4, Thou wilt keep him. In perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. You know, when troublesome times come, God will keep you in peace if your mind stayed on Him. Whatever troubles you might be facing, if you keep your mind on God, God will give you the peace that you need to get through. God will keep you in perfect peace. And here's why. Because He trusteth in thee. Your mind being on God is much more than just you reading your Bible to get some peace. Much more than just you saying, well, Lord, I'm thinking about you. Your mind is stayed on God because you believe you can trust in Him. And when you've entrusted yourself to Him and fastened yourself to that trust, it will bring that peace. And that is a peace that passes understanding. And it ends by saying this, Trust you in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. And then Isaiah 40, 27-31, I think you all know that passage, I won't read it. It ends with a passage that's been made into a song that's talking about the limitations of man and how your energy will run out. But God has everlasting strength, and if you'll wait on the Lord, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. The man up with wings as eagles. Then I, Jeremiah 32, 17 says, God made the heaven and the earth by His great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. And Jeremiah 32, 27, just ten verses later. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Somebody just said there wasn't anything. Now he's asking a rhetorical question. Is there anything? Jesus made this statement. This was a pretty interesting statement. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and facing this terrible persecution he was about to undergo, it's interesting that he would make this statement to God and it'll lead you into a lot of other issues, including omniscience, if you want to really think about this statement. He said to God, Abba, Father... All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. What a strange statement to make. All things are possible to you, Lord. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. In Romans 1.20, The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead. Romans four eighteen to 21 This is talking about Abraham. The fact that he maintained his faith in God even though it looked impossible. Some of the things that he faced. Who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what He, God, had promised, He, God, was also able to perform. And then the final one I'm going to read, Ephesians 3, to 21 Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, World without end.